In this conversation, I had the pleasure of chatting with Chris Tate, trader, trader mentor, and director of Trading Game, a Melbourne-based trader mentoring business, which has been mentoring traders for the past 21 years. Having personally been a trader since 1994, I've had a few too many moments where I thought I knew it all. And while I was looking forward to having a chat with Chris, given his success as a trading mentor, truthfully, I didn't really expect to learn a whole lot. To my surprise and delight, I found myself genuinely engaged in Chris's perspectives. Simple insights such as how to remove compulsion from trading decisions and the idea that markets are not a competition. Chris left me energised regarding the opportunities available in markets. It's refreshing to hear a trader mentor who's built a highly visible and successful online business speak truth to what it takes to be a successful trader. There was no spruik, no embellishment, just some simple takeaways that are valuable for any self-directed trader or investor. I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did. This is David Hobart from Beyond the Obvious, the podcast in search of unexpected insights for investment professionals. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat today. Uh, I've been wanting to have a talk to you uh, for some time. I mean, I've been watching your business from afar uh, and, you know, by all accounts, the the people that I've spoken with and the reviews that I've read, you, you know, you seem to be doing some interesting and very helpful things uh, for people that are getting into the markets, you know, particularly uh, in the Aussie equity space. I just wanted to ask maybe to start with, like, you know, you were a trader for a period of time prior to starting a mentoring business. Like, one, how long were you trading for? And then, two, what caused you to get into the tra- into the mentoring game? I, I started trading way, 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 way back in the dim, dark days when we actually had trading floors here in Australia. So I, I actually began uh, whilst doing graduate work in a completely unrelated field to finance. I actually started investing because it was the beginning of the 1980s bull market. It was a thing that was everywhere. I'd been involved with the sort of doing some consulting work for biotech companies that went public. And my, my interest in trading grew from there. And I, I bumbled along like everyone else did for a little while. And my interest kept growing and growing and growing. And I thought, well, who knows about trading? And I thought, stockbrokers do. That was one of the first mistakes I made in trading, assuming that stockbrokers actually know about trading. Hmm. And I, I actually talked my way into a broking firm. And I talked my way into a broking firm on the basis of being somewhat quantitative and having an interest in derivatives. And it was learn on the job. I often say that when I when I first turned up at the broking firm, I noticed the person sitting next to me had been selling carpets two weeks beforehand, and the person opposite me had been selling shoes. So the intellectual horsepower in the industry at that time was not all that great, and things have changed uh, over the years yeah. as regulations have changed, and there's now the need for some form of undergraduate degree and we have the, you know, relevant bits and pieces of licensing requirement you have to meet. But sure. I, I stayed in broking for quite a while but simply got sick of it. And I, I got sick of it around the time I was asked to write my first book 
And I thought, well, you know, lots of things have happened. It's not that the industry has changed, it's that I've changed and it's time to bow out and go private. And I continue to do a bit of consulting work for groups. I did a bit of consulting work for doing expert witness work. It was around about that time. We had a lot of option spruikers spruiking these magic systems and all they managed to do was send a lot of retirees broke. So I did some work for them. And I, I was actually really quite happily ensconced in just doing the occasional lecture for the ASX and the SFE as it was then and, you know, the occasional business group uh, until about, you know, 1998, 2000, when my now business partner, Louise Bedford, who I'd met at an ATAA conference, to me, look, I'm bored. You look bored. I wasn't. Uh, why don't we do a few bibs and bobs together? And, and it sort of flowed naturally because I, I'd, I'd been a tutor at high school I've been a tutor at university. I've been a sports coach. So teaching is just one of those things that you tend to do as part of your personality. It tends to be something that just comes naturally, a little bit like walking, talking and breathing. Yeah, no, fair enough. So how did you, um, like as a trader, how – what's the word, accomplished or, you know, profitable were you as a trader sort of in that 90s period leading up to becoming a mentor? How, how much how much bark did you have taken off you in the markets, you know, through yeah, that time? I, I think like everybody else, you, get, you, you do get a bit of a shoeing at times. Uh, let me, this, this is probably an easy way to put it into context. Uh, people actually think that for some obscure reason that you, you become incredibly wealthy writing technical-based books here in Australia. There's only two people who have ever made money out of books in Australia. One is Margaret Fulton with her cookbooks because a copy sat on every shelf in every home in Australia in the 1970s. And Bryce Courtney, who got $3 million for what the, the his last novel he wrote. Uh, and it sold oh, I four, think I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, and it sold four copies. They're the only two I can think of. Uh, the, the royalties you get from a book, in current day terms, per book pays for a Kit Kat. Current mm. price for Kit Kat at my local milk bar is two dollars fifty. Mm. So, so, so without trading, you just don't go anywhere writing technical books in Australia. It just doesn't work. All speaking engagements are free. So, mm. with, without the impetus of having a bank account behind you to actually keep you going, then you actually you actually run into trouble. And this is one of the, the, the constant discussions I have with people who want to become private traders. They unfortunately have encountered someone at a weekend seminar who has told them, look, it's quite possible to earn $5,000 a week with a $10,000 account trading Bitcoin. And that, that's simply nonsense. It doesn't stand the test of common sense. And it's a constant – it's something we constantly push back at because we say to people who say, look, when they come to me and they say, I want to trade full-time, and I say, well, look, that, that, that's a worthwhile ambition. And we can work out how much you need to, need to actually achieve that. 
if you assume that let, let's let's assume the All Ordinaries has a a rate of return over the long term of ten percent. Let's pick that as an yep. easy number. Mm-hmm. And you then ask them, you say, right, how much do you need to live? That is to pay for everything without without being adversely affected by a drawdown, without being, you know, on the poverty line. And they say, well, hundred thousand dollars. And I say, well, that's easy. You need one million dollars as an account to start. And they're somewhat taken aback by that because the the chat on social media is that it's really quite easy to start with tiny amounts of money as a full-time trader. You can start with any amount of money as an investor slash trader, but going full-time is a completely different thing. And one of the things that, uh, you know, these, these spruikers who tell people just sell your house and trade Bitcoin don't tell people is that, that they don't tell them about the magic of drawdown and the fact that there will be days, weeks, months, years where the account is either flat or in the red. And I, I and you probably see these as well. I see them pop up on LinkedIn all the time. These fake equity curves that people put up that are near linear. And when you look at them on a chart, their equity curve starts bottom left and finishes top right. And there's no dips in it. And you know instantly it's fake by sim- simply by that appearance. And so this the notion of going full-time for people is a difficult one. And it is actually something you have to plan. And it's something I had to plan. And I, I was very fortunate in that because of the things I'd done and the things I was still able to do, I was able to do it without too much difficulty, without too many problems. There's all the problems of, you know, how you organise your day, how you set up your business and all those mechanistic things. But once you get those sorted and you have a sufficient-sized account behind you, they take care of themselves. Interesting. I've always wondered about the, you know, trading versus investing and also the need for income versus the uh, willingness to allow your account to accumulate? Like how do you, when talking to clients, uh, sort of balance that conversation? That, 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 that's a profoundly insightful question and it, it's a question people don't ask themselves often enough. Invest, uh, the, way, the way I view it is that investors are often like farmers. They're very asset-rich but cash-poor. But traders, by on the other hand, are like milk bar owners. They've got enormous cash turnover, but they've got no asset growth. They've got nothing that they're actually seeing grow. So the question becomes, how do you balance those two? Mm-hmm. And I can only answer from my perspective. The way I balance them is simply through a systems approach. I have a weekly equity system. That is a, it's called an investment portfolio. That's the easiest way to describe it. Mm -hmm. But running to that is a short-term trading portfolio that strangely enough uses the same rules. It just uh, dissects the time frame into a different portion. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that simply because of the way I'm structured. For other people, and let's talk about people who want to go full-time, hmm. what what we tend to recommend to people is to say, well, if you think your account is at 
sufficient size, set yourself a test, a little benchmark that you've got to hit. And that benchmark is that for the next year, you will bank your salary and live completely off the income of your trading portfolio. If you can't do that, then you're not ready. And even for people who are ready to go full-time and do so, one of the things that we find is intriguing is that people come to full-time trading with a series of ideas as to what it will be. They believe that their idea will be like a repetition of the film, the 1980s film Wall Street. They will spend the entire day picking up the phone, yelling at their broker, saying, buy this, sell that, cover this, go along this. When in actual fact, what they do is they sit at a screen for half an hour in the morning, push a button, then their working day's over. And the majority of them suffer from near terminal boredom. The unfortunate thing with that is that terminal boredom in a trader is dangerous because they then look to entertainment and they they seek their entertainment from the market. And so to counter that, the majority of people that we've gone through, had go through our mentor programs who have not, for example, gone on to run a family office, some have started hedge funds, some have started broking firms. Those who don't have that sort of role will often go back to work in a part-time capacity. And in part, they do that simply because they miss the social contact, that incidental contact you get from people day to day. People underestimate how isolating being an individual trader is. Because outside of you and the screen and your phone, that's really all the contact you get for the day. That's simply it. And many, many people actually begin to suffer when they don't have that contact, where they don't have that little interplay with people during the day and that their trading suffers accordingly. No, I, I can certainly personally relate to that in, in that my, and my trading strategy over time has generally been, uh, well, it's been macro, but then it's had a sort of behavioral component where I'm more trading other people and other people's sentiment and emotion that I am actually trading the market. And, you know, over the years, as markets became more mechanistic, you know, algorithm uh, algorithm driven and, uh, and and a lot more passive investment, then, then those emotional cues have been harder to kind of identify and and I've sort of become a little bit more isolated as well. So on that note, uh, Chris, how, how has your sort of trading style and strategy evolved over time? Like when have you reached points when your, your strategy is not working and then you've sort of learnt when and how to shift it? That, that, that's an intriguing question because I, I, I always have a, a, a little bit of pushback against this sort of a generalised notion that markets have changed. And, and I have I have the pushback because, as you say, in, in behavioural trading, you are you're looking at cues from other people's behaviour. Markets, to me, are simply aggregations of people. Now, the mechanism of the interaction of people with the market has changed over time as technology has moved along. But the basis driving that interaction has not changed. People, in terms of being populations, don't change. And the the test I have for people is that I I actually believe that everybody needs to be a market historian. 
too many people wake up and think that they've just discovered the market and that the market's only been in existence for the time period that they are trading it. And this unfortunately leads to recency bias, which is simply, you know, my today is like my yesterday, therefore my tomorrow will be like today and nothing will ever change or be different. So the, the little challenge I pose people is, and I've been doing this for three decades, is I print out a series of charts from various points in history for various instruments and take the name off them. And I say, okay, where would you enter and where would you exit? And they, with the value of hindsight, people always tell me perfectly where they would because hindsight is the world's best investing tool. I then say to them, right, markets have changed and they will nod. And I say, okay, based upon that, you should be able to tell me what these instruments are and what time frame they're from because of the ecology of price movement because it should be different. No one has been able to do it yet in 30 years. And I've presented it hundreds of times. And it's simply because markets trend. Now, now, irrespective of what drives that trend, whether it be a bot or a group of individuals, doesn't really matter to me. And even with the notion of algorithmic trading, what you're seeing is that in a lot of algo trading, people are, how shall I put it, they're attempting to impose their own biases upon the machine's language. So they're telling the machine what to look for. What are they looking for? Well, let's assume they're looking for breakouts. What is a breakout? Well, a breakout is simply a point at which the bulls are out-competing the bears in terms of price and volume. So all of a sudden, we're back to recognising a behavioural component in markets. And I, th- I think, unfortunately, in some, some way, shape or form, People have crept into this, have been lulled into this notion that machines now rule the market. (laughs) Given some of the swings and volatility you see in markets, I'm not entirely certain that that is true. And from what I've seen of algo trading, particularly in recent years, is that in part they're engaged in a Darwinian competition with one another and they often cancel one another out, which is intriguing in itself. But second to that, Many of them, particularly when you look at the giant groups like uh, Jim Simon's Medallion, they've become market makers. So they're liquidity providers who take small clips. So in many ways, they're very much like the market makers we used to have on our options floors here in Australia or locals on the floor of the SFE. So I, I think from my perspective, I'm always a little bit cautious about saying about talking about how much markets have changed. Uh, for example, I, I have a chart I refer to regularly, which is prices from the South Sea bubble. The South Sea bubble was 300 years ago. I can overlay that over Bitcoin and it looks almost the same for most of its history. So what's changed? Well, in that time, an awful lot has changed because the South Sea bubble was in 1720. Uh, that's quite a long time before Australia was discovered. It's before the American Revolution. And so once you put it in the context of history, you, you have to try and work out what, why you think it's changed when it's actually the same. And so I, I always, I'm always a little bit circumspect uh, because I often hear this, I, I, I'll often see circulars from fund managers going, our results have been absolutely crap because markets have changed. 
no, your results have always been crap. They've just gotten crappier. That That's just the way it is. So it's it's one of those things where I, I, I tend to disagree with a lot of the sort of presumptive crowd wisdom. I, I understand the technology of interaction has changed. Speed of interaction has certainly changed quite quite dramatically. But do do does the ecology of the market change? I'm not certain because people as groups are incapable of change. There, there are some really good insights in that, Chris. I, and you know, I'm sort of having light bulbs go off uh, personally as you describe. And I, and and I think your last point to the ecology of interaction, yes, that's the distinction as opposed to you know the sort of fundamentals of the markets themselves and the you know that the, the, there are humans driving it whether it's you know behind an algorithm or otherwise uh you know the, it's human behavior that are still driving markets so that, that that's that's helpful so what about your strategies your you know in your own evolution as a trader how, how have you uh, modified whether it's to adapting to markets or just modified your own strategy to 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 get more edge if you like how have you gone about that over time? I, I, <clears throat> I've become simpler. But one of the problems I had when I first entered the market, and I, I entered from an academic background, is that I thought the market was an external problem to solve. And I thought that if I, if I could take my fancy little Hewlett-Packard 12C calculator and crunch enough numbers, that I could solve the market. It, it took me quite a while and quite a lot of my own money to slowly begin to realise that the problem with markets is an internal one. And and to be somewhat philosophical and a a little bit left field, I I actually don't even think markets exist outside the purview of what goes on between your own ears. It's impossible now to point to a market because they're now all electronic. But our perceptions of the market are all within our own psyche and it took me a, a long time to get to that point and to begin to claw back the things I was trying to do and to begin to simplify 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 if I can use an analogy my my sporting and coaching background is in martial arts when I did my first black belt grading thousands of years ago there were hundreds of things I had to learn to remember sorry and it, it was stressful, it was annoying, and you were overwhelmed by information. Shortly after that time, I went to work as a doorman, as a bouncer, and I found that of the thousands of things I knew as a martial artist, there were probably three or four I used almost every night as a bouncer. So everything I knew was largely irrelevant. But the thing that was the most relevant was my ability to deal with my own anxiety and to recognise anxiety in others and so therefore interact with them in a way that down-regulated not only their behaviour but mine at the same time. And so my view of markets is that it's this interaction where it's occurring in your head. Therefore, you have to set the tone of that interaction and you have to work enormously hard to sort of draw down the, the hyped up emotional sense that we get when dealing with markets. And the tools are really simple. I, I, I see the complexity of quantitative finance and I'm interested in it simply because 
it's an academic interest. And I, I came across a paper this morning that was presented to me on LinkedIn, and it, it had the somewhat grandiose title of, you know, using time series forecasts to predict prices of a series of commodities on exchanges. And I look through it, and it's very complex ma- mathematics. And I look at it and say, well, from an academic perspective, that that's really pretty. My, my next question is, yes, it's pretty, but do you make any money out of it? Because how do I then apply that? What, what do I, when, when the bell rings in the morning, what do I say to myself? Do I say, right, I've got all these equations to solve. Oh, shit, how do I do that again? Okay, I've got that. Well, it doesn't seem to be behaving. Why is it not behaving? Well, it doesn't, it's not behaving because markets are driven by humans and humans don't behave. So, so everything I do is an attempt to control my perceptions, my interactions, or, or, or all of the things I think, because for me, trading is very simple. You buy something when it's going up, you sell something when it's going down, you know, bet the farm. Now, I said it was simple. I didn't say it was easy. And, and that's where the dichotomy or distinction lies. The technicalities of trading are simple. We want to buy something at X and sell it at X plus 10. Easy peasy. Okay, how do do we actually deal with it when we've bought it at X and it's now X minus 5? And our model says it shouldn't be doing that, but it has. And then what what happens if it happens 10 times in a row? How how do we deal with sort of that cognitive anxiety where we've got these, you know, obsessive thoughts, these feelings of dread, you know, these fear-inducing ideas that go over and over and over and over in our head. And so my view is make it as simple as possible. Introduce a pause into all the decisions you make so that you stop before you make a decision because traders actually think that if they don't buy this one thing right now at $1, it will go to $50 million by the end of the day then they'll shut the markets forever and you'll never trade again. Now, I know that sounds illogical, but that is what's going on subconsciously in people, driving them to want to trade right now when they don't need to. So introduce the pause and make it simple and make it very, very simple. It's it's that that Richard notion, that Richard Feynman notion of trading. If you can't explain it to a five-year-old and have it ex- have them explain it back to you, you don't understand it well enough to break it down into its component parts. Uh, trading's like that. If you can't break it down into component parts, get a five-year-old to repeat it back to you, you don't really understand it well enough. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds to me, Chris, like your sort of basic strategies are kind of trend-related um, and and you know you is it fair to say you've sort of systematized your approach to a point but there's still yeah, some discretionary elements in it or no there's actually very little discretion in it it's yeah. it's flow charted out much like a flight plan would be mm-hmm. and so it's very much like a flight manual so you know if if a happens refer to appendix c you know if b happens refer to appendix f and so it, it, there's very little discretion because I, I find that when, when you have this sort of mechanistic approach, a systems-based approach, and I, I regard everything from highly technical algo trading through to someone who uses a flowchart 
to be a systematic trader because yeah. there's no wiggle room. I, I find the moment you try and introduce wiggle room, you, you run into trouble because one of the things I've always found with people in their decision-making, and it, it doesn't matter what arena the decision-making occurs in, people overestimate the input of their own intuition of their own ability to assess a situation. Uh, algorithms, rules, systems work far better in all settings than humans do because they cut out a lot of that extraneous nonsense that people think they bring, that sort of, I, I have an insight. Well, you don't really, you've just got a feeling and a, and a feeling is meaningless. And so if, everything I do is systematic if it if it does not match the rules then trades are just disregarded and it I, I've learned over the years that you, you can pass on a trade because you know trades are like number 72 trams there's one every 10 minutes on a weekday one every 25 minutes on a weekend there will be another one because markets are very generous that way yeah Chris how do you go about training as a trader like it's one of the things that i mean i started as a trader in 94 working for an investment bank and uh you know you sort of i think i had six weeks of paper trading before i was you know given a small allocation and then i basically had to learn or unlearn everything i did when i was paper trading but i i had to learn on the job essentially and and subsequent to then you know it's always been a challenge to actually train the skills like a sportsman would, you know, they go down to the, yeah. you know, the betting, uh, batting uh, nets or whatever, and they'll practice and practice and practice. Whereas in trading, it seems like most of the tuition you get on the job. Like, have you got any thoughts around that? Yeah, that, that that's one of the great drawbacks of trading is that in in other sort of high stress uh, sort of endeavours, let's let, let's pick one like a paramedic or a firefighter you get a high degree of theoretical and technical training, but over time you are gradually inoculated into the stresses of the profession. Mm. If you're a firefighter, they don't sort of give you the manual on firefighting one weekend and then drop you in the middle of a chemical fire on Monday and say, off you go. Unfortunately, that's what happens with trading. Mm. These professions are really useful in that they have this inoculation process where the stress of performing under certain conditions is gradually ramped up over time. So by the time you get to the real thing, it's not that much of a shock. The unfortunate thing with trading is there's none of that. As you say, you're just dropped into the deep end. The way I approach it is I assume that people know nothing at all even though they think they know everything, uh, particularly us blokes. Mm. And <clears throat> we, we begin to undo a lot of their thinking. It's the reason why in our mentor program, the bulk of the content is psychology. The technical stuff is really easy. Like that's simple. But the difficult part is the psychology. It is, it is guiding through people through the problems that they will face. One of the, the interesting things about trading is that nobody's problems are unique, but they are all idiosyncratic because they're individual problems. 
everybody makes the same mistakes over and over again. Nobody's making a new mistake in trading that hasn't been made before. So somebody knows the solution to that problem. It's just a matter of accepting that somebody knows the solution to that problem. And so we, we start people very, very slowly. But as you say, there is still that moment between when it's all theory and when it goes live. One of the things that the new technology has enabled us to do is to put gradual skin in the game. And by that I mean that it's now it's now possible to trade mini and micro contracts. You can have risk levels down as low as ten dollars. Mm. And this gives you some indication of uh, what you might encounter. Now it's imperfect because it's not you on full blast. And the market has this irritating behaviour or mechanism for sort of treating people somewhat gently when they first enter. And so there is still that consideration. And if I can use it, and you often don't know how people are going to behave. Some people give all the indications of... uh, that they'll behave very, very well, that they'll be logical and concise and in control of themselves, but quite the reverse occurs. And that there's really no mechanism for isolating who will be that person mm. until you see them actually under stress because people show you who they really are when they are actually under stress. That's when the real them comes out. And so there is still that, that moment where you are uncertain, and they are vastly uncertain, as to how they'll behave. And the unfortunate thing about any form of coaching or mentoring is that not everybody makes it. Not not everybody is cut out to trade. Most people can invest in a mechanistic way. But trading is a slightly different beast and requires a slightly different mechanism of interaction. And a lot of people are not cut out for that. And a lot of people realise that quite early on because they're quite self-aware. And so they will move away from that arena and concentrate more on the, let's call it the investment side, the long-term wealth creation side. And that that suits them because investing is, well, any form of market interaction is about finding what your game is. And, And once you find your game, you can play your game and life becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. Have you got, uh, you know, based on your, what, 20 plus years of mentoring, Chris, um, some sort of, what's the word, um, rules of thumb in terms of what you can see, whether it be character traits or behaviours that just don't work uh, as a trader. So people should kind of, if if they know they're going to bring that to the table, they should probably not come to the table. Yeah. Strangely enough, you you do get, you do generate a, a a perspective. And intriguingly, the thing we find is strangely enough what's been found in the literature, and that is, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, women as a population do better than men. Mm. We always find that the women do better than men as, as a population. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> there's a single reason for that, and it's testosterone. Uh, testosterone makes you stupid. It also causes you to lack self-awareness. 
there is a reason why the majority of the the videos on YouTube of people doing outrageously stupid things are men. <laughs> it's the reason why the, the number of stupid things you see done in the market are done by men because it becomes a competition. They bring their ego into it. They can't let themselves be free of their own ego. We also note that some professions do poorly. Uh, doctors do very, very poorly as a population. And they do so because of what you would term a halo effect. They come to the profession of trading and go, well, I'm a doctor, therefore I'm immensely clever. I'm much smarter than everybody else, so therefore I'm smarter than the market. And that the moment anybody has that notion that they are smarter than the market, you know they're going to be tripped up because the market is smarter than everybody. And it will actually point that out to you at some point in time. So you do get a sense from people who are, who are going to struggle. Uh, people who are overly mechanistic, uh, engineers, mathematicians, se- seem to have a dichotomy between them. Some do exceptionally well because they're able to follow their rules and engage according to their rules. Some do incredibly poorly because they can't get started. They cannot mm-hmm. conceive of a system that has losing trades because their professional background and their academic background is based upon not making mistakes, not being wrong. And so they in turn suffer. And that, that's a – look, I won't say it's a cognitive disorder. It's, it's simply a, a behavioural quirk that their profession has given them. If you are a mathematician or a physicist, you, your work is dependent upon you being correct because you are, you exist in a profession where answers are either right or wrong. Mm. Well, trading has a degree of grey to it in that you can be right in the morning, neutral at lunchtime and wrong in the afternoon, or you could be the reverse. And, and that grey tends to cause some problems. They're not used to operating with that degree of flexibility. That's interesting. Uh, there seems certainly some commonality in all of that. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully, if um, if you hear yourself in any of that and are thinking about trading, well, you might think twice. So, Chris, what about, um, you know, in terms of your sort of trading edge? Like, uh, uh, now I know you hold the view that markets, you know, in aggregate, you know, haven't really changed over time, uh, but... Have you found that your edge in the way that you're engaging with the market, you know, has shifted over time? And 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 how have you changed your approach? You said you said you've sort of simplified. Is that just the simple? Is it the simple summary, or is there any other specifics that you can kind I, of I, think of? Yeah, I think from an internal perspective, one of the most important things I have brought into what I do is is. Uh, the, the no, this notion of a pause, of stopping. You, you can always find time and space. And so you don't have that compulsion to trade. Mm. I think the important thing for traders is once they lose the compulsion to trade, that desire to do something, because, I mean, trading is a verb. It, it's something you do. Mm. If you're not trading, how can you call yourself a trader? But... Uh, 
a lot of trading success comes by doing nothing. And by do, doing nothing, I mean either not taking the trade, simply having the discipline to say, it's not right, I will let this one go, or doing nothing in terms of saying, well, there's no reason to exit, I will sit. And it is that introduction of the pause that is something I try and get across to people, and it's something that's become bound up in the way I trade and the way I see markets. And so it's been a process of whittling back everything until it becomes as simple as possible. But then looking at sort of the idiotic things you do as an individual, and one of the most important things traders can do is to actually keep a journal. Now, many people keep a trading diary, and in that trading diary they will write down the trades they've taken, the reasons for them, you know, in terms of the technical or mechanistic reasons, you know, it might have hit a new high, there might have been a report, something that has triggered their actions. But very few people actually write down their thoughts. And this came to me years ago when I was looking at one of my uh, training diaries from weightlifting. And it, it had all that sort of mechanistic criteria in there, you know, what you'd done, blah, blah, blah. But at the bottom of it, it said, how did you feel? And I'd never encountered that before in a training diary because it was never a consideration. Mm. And the thing is, once you begin to note how you feel, how you're reacting, you begin to get a sense of the sort of interplay of your emotions in the market. And once you're aware of something, once you've become attuned to something occurring, you can actually begin to act on it because you are actually getting data. It's just this time the data is not about the market. The data is about you and actually what you are doing. So yeah, would you have an example of that, like where you've actually found uh, a repetitive behavioural, you know, or rep repetitive behaviour of your own where you've gone, uh, I know what I was feeling and this is what kind of turned up in my behaviour, so this is what I've modified? Yeah, very, very, very much because I'm – I used to have a, a reputation as quite an aggressive trader hmm. in that I would hit, hit positions very, very hard and continue to hit them. And in many ways that came from uh, – I, I, I was viewing it and I hadn't realised it at the time as a – I was still viewing the market as a competition. Hmm. And so when I would look back at how I was feeling, it would be things like amped up, aggressive – you know, sparky, just wanting to get going, impatient. Mm. And it, it's all the things I used to look at, for example. Uh, and, and when I looked back on it, I actually sat and thought about it over time. It, it's exactly the emotions I used to feel when, <clears throat> when I was padded up, ready to go, and all set to step in the ring to fight. Mm. It was, let's get going. You know, what, what the hell are we waiting for? Let's go. Mm. I'm here. You're here. Let's go. And it, it was all those testosterone-driven, very, very male, very aggressive sort of emotions and language. And the intriguing thing about my observations now, decades later of people, is that when I, when I look at common phrases that people use, particularly in the media, things like blood in the street, which is a phrase from Baron Rothschild's, mm. I look at that and think, you dick, 
And how could you think that that is in any way helpful to, to anything? And I, I used to hear this speak when I was a broker, and you, it, it, it's completely unhelpful because it builds the wrong internal metaphors. It, it, trading is not a competition. It, it's more akin to a dancer. It's more akin to surfing. Mm. And it, if you change your language, you change the way you feel. And once you change the way you feel, your interaction with the market becomes, again, not easy, but more relaxed. Yeah. It sounds to me, Chris, like you over time have managed your attachment, you know, your outcome attachments quite well. So you it's you're, you sound more unattached to, you know, obviously individual trade outcomes, but find that uh, is a way that helps you manage, like when you're in a drawdown, for example, and you're running a mentoring business. So people, you know, there's a natural tendency for humans to think your proverbial doesn't stink. And when you're actually, you know, struggling, um, you know, how, how do you manage that? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a perceptive observation. It, it, it is a matter for me of, let's talk about the notion of drawdown. Mm. I, I regard drawdowns as temporary. And I, I've also long taken the view that, well, let, let's, <clears throat> let's use another sort of analogy from my past. There were times when you would walk into the weight room and you would be the strongest person there, but by far, without, without a problem. There are other days you'd walk in and you'd go, God, why is the bar so heavy? I can barely put my shoes on. Mm. And, and you need to accept that there are there are always times when you, you are more feather duster than rooster, mm. if I can use that sort of very old expression. And that, that to me is just simply part of the natural acceptance of the way markets cycle and the, and the, and the way you cycle. There will always be times when there is someone doing better. Now, that does not discount uh, the knowledge you have or the track record you have or the history you have. It, it simply says that you are human. Your business is prone to moments when it's not doing as well as you would like or as you would want. But that's simply part of the, the way the world works. And again, we come back to that notion of accepting just the way the world works. Mm. And it's also the notion that when, when, <clears throat> when, when you teach, that the job of a teacher is to make certain that their students are better than they are. Uh, because I can't, I can't think of any other reason why you, why you would do it. Mm. The, the, the role of a teacher or a coach is not to make someone mediocre or to make someone the same as you. It is to make them the best version of themselves that they can be. Mm -hmm. now, now, if that person goes on to, you know, run the world's most successful family office, then your job's done. Mm. And, and it's not this notion of a competition. Again, we come back to that word competition, that, that you know, sort of testosterone-driven idiocy that seems to afflict all of us. Chris, that's uh, that's it's been really uh, surprising. I've you know I've been a trader as I said earlier for many years, twenty-five years, and you know I've had periods of um, you know great positive uh, trading performance, and I've had you know protracted periods of uh, rubbish 
trading performance and hearing your sort of balanced balanced and mature I don't even know what the right words are here I just I'm getting a sense of um, possibility in what it is that you're describing around trading uh, and and I'm personally getting lots of value from our chat so I you know thank you and what is there anything before we wrap up I'm conscious of time so is there anything that you'd kind of like to leave with before we sort of get your details for where people can get in touch I, I think one one of the things and this comes back to you know the point you mentioned before about you know periods of doing well periods of doing poorly is that one of the things that's often difficult to convince people of is that markets are exceptionally generous. Uh, people view the market as a predator, and it's not. It is completely neutral. All the market says to you on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis is. Here is this opportunity. Do you wish to take it? Yes or no. And the only decision you have to make is yes or no. Because the market will go in the direction it wants to go, whether you're a participant or not. Because that's what markets do. And markets, when they're being very generous, will say to you over and over again, do you wish to participate? And so it's a matter of people getting over the hump of finding reasons not to participate. The interesting thing I've noticed in people, others others and myself, over the years is that you can, you can always find a reason not to do something. There's always a little nagging doubt in the back of your head. Mm. Um, I, I overcome that by simply saying the market has infinite generosity towards me. It doesn't know I exist, but it just presents these opportunities to myself and others. And it's really up to me what I make of those opportunities. Yeah, interesting context. Yeah, and it's so often, isn't it, that context is the thing that kind of enables you. You can have an empowering context or you can have a disempowering context, but that's all all exists inside your own head. So, Chris, uh, can people get in touch with you if they'd like uh, to find out more about what you do? The easiest way to touch base with me is courtesy of our website, which is tradinggame.com.au. We have a, you know, there's always a variety of free resources, such as we have a trading plan review, we have an e-course for people that you can sign up and get. You can find me on all the social media culprits mm. uh, under Trading Game, because that seems to be the thing everybody does nowadays, is be on social media. Uh, or people can drop me an email at chris at tradinggame.com.au. Any of those will find me. Oh, that's perfect. All right. Well, thanks again, Chris, for uh, taking the time today. It's been a really great chat. I really appreciate it. And and uh, I hope, um, you know, over the coming month or so, you being down in Melbourne, you get a little bit of freedom. Oh, that would be a wonderful thought, wouldn't it? Just to be able to go more than 5K would be brilliant. Be like Christmas. Well, we don't have long to wait. <laughs> That's true. Thanks again, Chris. Cheers. No problems, David. Thanks a lot. That's it for today's episode of Beyond the Obvious. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or on my website, davidhobart.com. Until next time, hooray.